0: We begin today a new series. Uh, also, if, if you're uh, new here, um, we, what we like to do as a church is preach through various genres of the Bible. Uh, in particular, we like to uh, not only go uh, from, ser- from sermon series to sermon series in different genres, but, but even in different Testaments. So. Uh, we, we will preach maybe out of one of the prophets in the Old Testament, and then we'll preach maybe out of the Gospels in the New. And, uh, and so we finished a, a lengthy series in the Gospel of John, and so before I went on uh, sabbatical, I thought, hey, you know what, I think I'm going to delve back into one of Paul's letters, uh, because it's been a long time since I preached there, uh, knowing that uh, Stan, uh, who graciously filled in for me said hey I'll preach a series in James so you're getting two letters in a row Uh, but that's great because it's all God's word this morning we will be looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians Uh, now it's a short letter relatively speaking for Paul um, but uh, and we'll be going through it uh, as we always do chunk by chunk taking little bits here and there uh, depending on what the passage is but, uh, but I would encourage you, as we go through this series, to take some time and just read straight through the letter here and there. Uh, it's, a, it's a great letter, and to get it all in one sitting is, uh, is really beneficial. But this morning, our text is uh, The Greeting, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now, if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up and follow along. It's a very short passage, obviously, but if you don't have a Bible with you but would like to look at it, we're going to be looking at individual words in these two sentences. So uh, you might want to grab the Bible that you'll find in the seat in front of you, and you'll find our passage, if you use that Bible, on page 980. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians is a letter. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul. And he sent it to this church that he planted on his second missionary journey, The church was planted in the city in Macedonia, the ancient city called Philippi. Philippi was, it was a very important city. It was a big deal back in those days. Philippi was named after Philip of Macedonia. Now, probably most of you have never heard of Philip of Macedonia, but most assuredly you've heard of his son, Alexander the Great. So you can see kind of the, the prestige that this city had. It was, in a sense, uh, very much like a modern American city, uh, a, a modern, wealthy American city. It kind of had something for everybody. It had theaters, you know, as we've, as we've unearthed and, and done excavations and things, we found theaters there. We've we found shops We've found forums there, places where people would go and, and gather and discuss the, the latest ideas of the day, kind of like their version of social media. Um, they had all kinds of sports complexes and, and beautiful fountains and beautiful and ornate buildings, and they had temples there. It was, like, again, it was this, this very impressive city. And you even find that in Acts 16, which we read earlier, where where you see Luke, the author, says that uh, Paul uh, went into Philippi, which was a great city. He talks about how it was a city of renown. Philippi was also, which wasn't true of all great cities at that time, it was an official Roman colony. And scholars say that as a Roman colony, it meant that the citizens of Philippi enjoyed all the benefits and privileges of Roman citizenship. One of which was they didn't have to pay any taxes. Another of which was that they were given uh, due process in court if they were convicted of, of a crime. And so they, they had all of these benefits and this glitz and glitter of this city. Now Paul planted the church there around AD 48 to 52, again, during his second missionary journey. And over the years, the next 10 years or so, Paul enjoyed a, a great relationship with that church. It was a, a tight relationship. They were, he was very friendly with the church. He visited the church after planting it at least two times, and they supported him monetarily and, and with encouragement throughout his missionary journeys. And this letter that we are looking at now over the next few months was sent to them around AD 62, so it was around 10 years or so after Paul first visited Philippi and the church was first planted. Now again, the church, the, the city, and 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 the area was was sort of, if you will. Uh, as I, as I discussed, uh, full of glitz and glamour, but not all was right in the city because not all was right for those times, just like in every time. One New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson, he says this, quote, like modern Western culture, the Roman Empire had begun to decay. Like ours, it was prepared to use religion for political ends, but unwilling to be tamed by it, settling slowly into cultured self-indulgence proud of the diversity in the empire and straining to keep it together by the demand for unhesitating loyalty to the emperor. Pluralism of several kinds made it unpopular to say that there is only one way of salvation. That was Paul's world when he wrote to the Philippians. What you'll find if you read through this letter is you'll find that though it is very short, it is a letter packed with Ideas and concepts like joy. Joy is repeated over and over again. Joy, affection, gratitude, encouragement. The letter is full of wonderful ideas from Paul to this church. And we begin this morning by looking at the greeting. First, let's look at verse 1. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Now, I just want to make one note here. Almost this entire sermon is based on this first verse. So, if I preach for a long time, and then we move on to verse 2, don't think it's going to be an hour and a half long sermon. Verse 2, not much time spent on that. Philippians, as you can see here, it, it begins with a greeting. And you know, we might not write letters that often these days, but, but when we write letters, we, we typically begin with a greeting as well, dear so-and-so. The difference is, if you look at, at, at this letter, uh, what the ancients did in the time of Paul was they didn't end with the, the author or the sender, they began with the sender. So you can see here it begins, Paul and Timothy lists who it is, to all the saints, I was thinking that's probably a better way to do it. Because wouldn't you want to know? I mean, if you knew who was sending you this thing, you might not even want to read it, uh, depending on whether you like the person or not. I mean, that right away, you know who it is. The senders are Paul and Timothy, and the recipients are the church in Philippi. Now, Paul's other letters to churches begin in this way as well. They all begin with him listing himself first. But this one, this particular letter to the Philippians, is different. It's very different from his other letters, and it's different in this way. It's different in how Paul chooses to identify himself. Now, identifying yourself, the idea of your identity is a big deal these days. You hear about it all the time. How do you identify? Well, Paul is always identifying himself, not only by name, but by something about him. And almost always, when you go through Paul's letters, he almost always chooses at the beginning of the letter to identify himself as an apostle. That's usually his choice of identity. Romans 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. 1 Corinthians, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Galatians. Galatians, which is kind of a stern letter, he opens with kind of a strong statement of his apostolic authority. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Time and again, you see Paul giving as his introduction his credentials as an apostle. Apostle, that word literally means sent one. Now, you may recall, I think a lot of people, when they think of apostle, sometimes I think we get that confused with disciple. We we, we kind of interchange them. We call the 12 disciples, 12 apostles. Well, all the apostles were disciples. But disciple means learner, or pupil, or student, or follower. And Jesus had many, many disciples. Just read through the Gospels. Lots of disciples. All believers are disciples of Jesus Christ, but apostle or sent one, you remember out of his disciples, he chose 12. And those 12 he named apostles, sent ones. And to those 12 alone, he gave specific power and authority to represent him. To the world. Remember the the 12 apostles, they, they went around and when they came back, they said, We're doing all kinds of things. We're casting out demons. We're healing people. We're proclaiming the gospel in your name. It is the teaching of the apostles, that authoritative word that Christ and Christ alone gives to an apostle. It is that teaching that is the foundation for the church. That's why. Paul says in Ephesians, the church itself is resting upon and rooted and built upon the foundation that is the teaching of the prophets and the apostles. It's important that Paul's letter, this letter to the Philippians, be written by an apostle. If it weren't written by an apostle, we wouldn't be preaching from it. The reason it's in our Bible is because Paul is an apostle. And that's what he stresses all the time. Normally, when Paul writes about Timothy, he will even stress the differences between himself and Timothy. If you read, for instance, 2 Corinthians, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother." He distinguishes between himself with apostolic authority and Timothy. Colossians 1, same thing. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. But here, notice in the beginning of Philippians, he does not give his apostolic credentials. Why not? Well, probably for two reasons. First of all, they knew him well. They knew him well, and from all, everything that we know, that church accepted unhesitatingly and without any doubt that Paul was an apostle, something that some of the other churches didn't accept. Some of the other churches had problems with Paul. They doubted him. They they went after other teachers that they thought were super apostles and this, that, and the other. That wasn't the case with the church at Philippi. But second of all, I think, and maybe this is even more important, It's because of the lesson he wanted to instill in this church that we will see as we go throughout the letter. Because of that, Paul identifies himself not as apostle of Christ Jesus, but rather as servant of Christ Jesus. And unique among all of his letters, for the first and only time, Paul uses one title to describe both he and his secretary, if you will, Timothy. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, our English translation, the one we're using today, uses the word servant. That's an acceptable translation for the Greek word. It's probably what most of you, even if you're not using ESV, is translating it. But one New Testament scholar says this. While servant found in most English translations is an acceptable rendering, it also causes the English reader to lose something of its force. For the basically Gentile readers of this letter, the word would have only meant slave. Indeed, slaves were so common in the Greco-Roman society that no one would have thought it to refer other than to those owned by and subservient to the master of a household. To be sure, the institution of slavery in antiquity was a far cry from the racial slavery that blighted American and English society, Yet even so, the slave in the Roman Empire was not a free person, but belonged to another. Now I want us to understand that because I want us to understand what Paul is saying as he identifies himself, as he chooses his primary identity to express who he is to this church. He is choosing a word that when that church read that word, it would have been received with some shock. Because Paul is identifying himself not as an authoritative representative of Christ, but as being the property of Jesus Christ. He is saying that he is owned by Christ Jesus. He is saying that he was purchased by Christ Jesus, that he is the possession of Christ Jesus. And the reason he can include Timothy in that same designation, is precisely because slave of Christ is exactly what every Christian is. Christian Paul says to you this morning, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So therefore, glorify God in your body. Paul and Timothy were free men as far as Roman society was concerned. And yet, when they thought of who they were, their primary thought was whose they were. Christian, as you sit here this morning, when was the last time that as you pondered who you were, or as you expressed who you were to someone in society, That when you considered and identified yourself, your primary thought was, I am a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. When was the last time that that as you considered who you were, you thought, I am not my own, I've been bought with a price, and therefore I must glorify God in all that I do. Brothers and sisters, there, whatever the shock is from Paul calling himself a slave of Christ, if you think about it, there is no higher label that you could give yourself than slave of Christ. Because if you are his slave, then you can be sure that you were purchased with his blood. He bought you with his own blood, far more precious than any amount of gold or silver this world could offer. And yet, even though the Philippians were indeed slaves of Christ, Interestingly, slave is not how Paul chooses to identify them. He calls him and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus, but then when he, he addresses them, he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. He identifies them, if you uh, think of it this way, he identifies them in three ways. One primary word and then kind of, uh, he, he, he modifies that word. He, he calls them primarily saints. And then he modifies that label with saints in Christ and saints at Philippi. So, first, let's look at this word saints. What does saint mean? How would you define the word saint? Well, in popular culture, I think over the years, it's probably meant someone who's maybe very religious. Maybe sometimes you think a saint is someone who's very nice. She's such a saint. Uh, maybe for some of you, if you're young enough and you've never even heard these uh, old-fashioned statements, saint to you is simply someone who plays football in the city of New Orleans. For some of you, if you grew up in the Catholic Church or, or some other, uh, you know, denomination like that, you, you might think a saint is someone who's super religious and, and someone who lived a long time ago and is super important to the, to the church. It, interestingly, we tend to call him St. Paul, right? Because of that very reason. And and, and he is a saint, just as we all are. But interestingly, he calls himself Slave Paul to St. Philippians. He reverses that. The Greek word translated saints comes from the Greek word for holy. That's what saints mean. And so when you read saints, what, what Paul is calling them is literally the holy ones, Now, what does that mean? The holy ones? Well, it depends on what you mean by the word holy. What is holy? Well, perhaps the best example we have, uh, at least the one that stands out and really emphasizes it, is in Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah saw a vision of the Lord seated on the throne, this was after the king had died, the earthly king. And what did he see? He saw this vision. God seated on the throne, and he said that above him stood the seraphim. These were angels. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah said, when I, when I saw him, I said, Woe is me, for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The Bible says that God above all else is holy. And in fact, although God has many attributes, holiness is the one attribute that the only one that we see in the Old Testament repeated to the third degree. And so that if you wanted to say, What God is at his essence, one way you could say is that God is, above all else, holy. And when a human being like Isaiah or other humans, when they come into the immediate presence of the Holy One, they are undone, just as what happened to Isaiah. Why is that? Well, it's because holiness means primarily otherness. Otherness. God is other. He is entirely other. There is God the creator and there is everything else. Isaiah 46, God says, I am God. There is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Christian, as we gather here this morning, aren't you glad that we worship a sovereign and holy God? Aren't you glad that we worship a God who even now, even though so many things in our world seem to be falling apart, is even now sitting on his throne and reigning and bringing about his ends? That is our God. And God is holy. It means he is set apart from everything else. And in the Old Testament, for something to be holy, it meant that God chose that thing and set it apart for his special purposes. God is holy, he is set apart, and when he makes something holy, he sets it apart. That's what holiness means. Exodus 19, you find this. Now therefore, God speaking to his people, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth. For all the earth is mine, but you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God separated Israel and set them apart as a special nation for his purposes. Christian, let me ask you again this morning. When was the last time you identified yourself as a saint? When was the last time you identified yourself as someone who has been set apart for God and for his purposes? Notice how Paul modifies this title of saint in two ways. Again, first he modifies it by saying they are in Christ Jesus, and secondly, at Philippi. Let's look at the first one. In Christ. In Christ. Scripture refers to God's people in lots of different ways. We've already talked about disciples. Uh, we've talked about saints, Christians. The Bible calls Christians Christians. Uh, disciples, he calls uh, early on, they were called the way. Lots of ways that God's people are described. But for the Apostle Paul, if you read through his letters, the primary way that he describes believers is with that phrase in Christ. In Christ. That is for Paul the number one way. If you read through his letters, you will see that he refers to Christians in that way, or in some way or other, in some fashion, around 165 times. He calls us in Christ. Why is it so important for us to identify ourselves as being in Christ? It's crucial. And the reason it's crucial is because Scripture identifies two human beings in all of history as being the two most consequential people who have ever lived. Now, Time Magazine and and others will will do these uh, write-ups and they'll say, who are the most important people in the 20th century or who are the most consequential people that have ever lived and and, and you, read, you can read those kind of reports all the time. Now, if they're honest, they will always list Jesus at, as number one. I mean, he unquestioned, you know, without question has, has altered the course of history far greater than any other human being who has ever lived. And so if they're being honest, they will pick him. But they usually don't pick the other one as having any consequence. But in scripture's mind, in scripture's teaching, the two most consequential people in all of history were Adam and Jesus. Jesus is referred to as the second Adam. And all people who have ever lived In all of human history, whatever their background, whatever their ethnicity, whatever their language, whatever king they lived under, whatever era they lived in, all human beings will be, at the end of the age, categorized under one of those two men. Either you will be represented by Adam, and you will be in Adam Or you will be represented by Jesus Christ, the second Adam, and you will be in Christ. That's it. And as Paul tells us, in Adam, all die. In Christ, all will be made alive. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Becoming a Christian, according to the Bible, is not something you can just do. You can't under your own power just decide to be a Christian. You can't under your own power just decide to be in Christ. Becoming a Christian isn't like, you know, buying this new self-help book, Atomic Habits and deciding, hey, I think I'll add that to my repertoire, or, or buying another self-help book, or, or finding a new philosophy, or choosing a new religion, or, you know, choosing a new sports team. It's, it's completely different than that. Becoming a Christian isn't like that because becoming a Christian is not up to you. Becoming a Christian is up to God. To become a Christian doesn't mean you've adopted a new philosophy, but it is rather to have your entire life be remade by the power of Almighty God. Being a Christian is to be chosen by God and to be transformed by God into a new creation. Perhaps the best passage that will give us it all of the dimensions of the amazing awesomeness of being in Christ is Ephesians chapter 1. Listen to all the ways that Paul uses and, 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 and uses this phrase in Christ in some way or another in this passage and everything that we get. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Don't you see how the grandeur of that compared to, yeah, I think I'll grab Christ and put Him in my back pocket as a new philosophy... Christian, as you sit here this morning, how would you honestly say that you identify yourself primarily? American, Pennsylvanian, German, Irish, African, Republican, Democrat, engineer or doctor, Eagles fan. How would your neighbors and those you are around every day identify you primarily? Christian, when was the last time you identified yourself primarily as in Christ? What difference would it make? What difference would it make? in your day, in how you live your life, if every day when you woke up you reminded yourself, I have been chosen by God, I have been purchased by God, I have been set apart by God, and I have been given everything by God in Christ. Because, you see, we're not simply in Christ, but notice we're also, well for them, at Philippi. Technically, the Greek preposition here is the same one before the word Christ. If you look at the Greek, Paul writes, in Christ, in Philippi. But I like the way the ESV translators have translated it, at Philippi, because I think it captures the distinction that Scripture makes between where we are and whose we are. See, no matter where we are geographically, we are always saints in Christ, no matter where we are at. I realize that's bad grammar. It's why I could travel to Belgium and and Denmark a few years ago and in many ways feel very much not at home in many ways, feel very much uh, in a foreign country. And yet, when I got together with other believers from that area and even from the Middle East, what I discovered was very much that I felt at home. And that's because even though I was away from, geographically, my home, I was with and among others who are also in Christ. And yet, our geography matters. In one sense, as we will learn later on in this letter, our citizenship, our primary citizenship is in Christ, in heaven. Scripture calls us exiles. Scripture calls us pilgrims and sojourners and strangers in a strange land. And and in one very important sense, this world is not our home. We are just a passing through. And yet, in another very important sense, because we are creatures, because we are embodied souls, because that's how God made us, we're not omnipresent. God has chosen to place each one of us in a specific time in history, in a specific place around specific people. And he has placed us there, those of us who are in Christ, whose citizenship is in heaven, so that we can be an ambassador to that place an ambassador for the country whose home we really have in heaven. I think you can think of this life, life in this world, kind of like a camping trip. Uh, One of the places we went to during the sabbatical was um, Yellowstone. And we had never been there, but uh, it was an amazing part of it. We spent in in an RV park in, in West Yellowstone in Montana, and then for part of the trip, we, we went and stayed in a campground in Cody, Wyoming. And we were in the campground in Cody, I think, for about three days. And while there, we were, I think, pretty good citizens of, of that campground. Uh, we followed the rules. I, I, I liked it. It was a nice place. I, I really grew to like the coffee there because in the morning, I could buy one cup of coffee from the guy at the front desk for a dollar and then I could go back to them all day and get free refills. So I, I got, could get 10 cups of coffee for $1. Now, where else can you get that except for the check-in place at the campground in Cody, Wyoming? I don't know. Not, certainly can't get it around here. But how foolish would it have been for me to be at that campground and want to stay and live at that campground rather than returning home because of the dollar coffee, How foolish would it have been? You receive a letter from me. Guys, I'm not coming back. You'll have to find a new pastor. I can't give up the dollar a day coffee. We were good citizens of that campground and we follow the rules, but we didn't ever think of it as home. Have you, Christian, become too attached to the things of this world that you don't yearn for home? Christian, do you identify yourself as a temporary resident and ambassador to those in Westchester? Do you consider yourself an ambassador to those in your college or those in your high school or those in your work or your next-door neighbors or other believers here at Meadowcroft? Are you being a witness for the one whose identity you bear? What did it mean for them, and I'll close with this. This is the last verse. What did it mean for them to be in Christ at Philippi. Well, for Paul, living as an ambassador for Christ, it meant that he was beaten with rods and thrown in jail, as we saw. What will it mean for you? Well, probably not that. At least not yet, maybe not ever. But you see, it will mean that sometimes the priorities of the city you live at will come in conflict with the priorities of the Lord that you live in. And when that happens, you will face a decision and one that will cost you in some way. Which all the more amazing that this letter that is filled with joy and gratitude and encouragement and affection was written from a Roman prison. Paul was two to five years away from being beheaded for being an ambassador for his king. How is it possible then? How is it possible to be in prison, be awaiting your death, and be so full of joy? Well, the answer is in verse 2. Paul says to us, to these Philippians, not just greetings, but grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How can we find in the midst of this world joy and affection and gratitude and encouragement in this post-Christian society? by understanding that in Christ we have two things that will never be taken from us. God's grace and God's peace. Christian, you have been the recipient of God's unmerited favor. You didn't deserve it. You deserved his justice. And yet he poured out on you his amazing grace and because of that you are now at peace with God. Not a... Not a subjective feeling of peace, although you might have that, but whether you feel peace or not, if you are in Christ, you are at peace with God. Hostilities have ceased. Because of his grace, you are no longer his enemy, but his friend. What kind of ambassador, then, will you be? Well, the rest of Philippians will go on to give us many practical instructions, but here at the beginning... I wanted us to see first who we are before we look at what we are called to do. As Christians, we should be the most humble, loving, joyful, patient, forgiving, truthful, steadfast, honorable, empathetic people this world has ever seen. And we should be that way because our Lord and King, the one who alone is holy, 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 The one who is completely other, the one who declares the end from the beginning, he, that one, willingly gave up his royal throne, as we will see. And he became a slave for us. He made himself nothing. And on the cross, he bore the justice and wrath that we deserved so that we might receive his grace and peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this letter. We're so grateful for what you have reminded us this morning. And Father, we pray that you would impress upon us all of the truths that this letter, this letter to the Philippians, will teach us over the coming months. Father, remind us of who we are in Christ so that we may serve you to the fullest. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.